You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 3rd of November 2023 on Monocle Radio. Hello and a warm welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Emma Nelson and coming up in the next 30 minutes, the US Secretary of State heads to Israel. It's important that the United States is committed to making sure everything possible is done to protect civilians. We'll examine what Antony Blinken could achieve. Also ahead, a collapse in the yen forces Japan to scale back an historic military upgrade. We'll look at the long-term effects on the region. Plus... Why the sound of Switzerland is causing sleepless nights for the residents of one alpine village. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Emma Nelson. The Israeli Defence Forces says it's encircled Gaza City and is in full force fighting Hamas. It follows the exodus of millions of Palestinians from northern Gaza ahead of the Israeli ground operation. Those Palestinians are now in the south where a humanitarian crisis has been unfolding for three weeks. Well, it's in that context that the US Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Israel with calls growing louder for Israel to hold humanitarian pauses. Well, June Lee Norman is co-director of University College London Centre on US politics. She's a regular voice on Monocle Radio and she joins us now. Very good afternoon to you, Julie. Good afternoon. So we, we already have Anthony Blinken in Israel and several uh, Hebrew media outlets are reporting that Israel is, is showing Blinken some of the footage uh, from the atrocities that Hamas perpetrated against its victims on, on October the 7th. I mean, this is Israel already sort of trying to seize the narrative the minute that Blinken arrives. Well, I think it is. You know, for Israel, obviously, what happened on October 7th was a complete um, change in their sense of security, uh, their sense of, of self and everything. So they're going to try and emphasize that to Blinken. Obviously, Blinken is aware of that. He was in Israel right after the attacks, um, you know, talking to, to both politicians as well as those affected. So this won't be um, news to him. And what he and the Biden administration are trying to do is to say to Israel, yes, there is still a right to defend yourself, to respond to Hamas after this atrocity, but to do so in a way that also takes humanitarian suffering into account, tries to limit civilian casualties and ensures that aid can still get into the Gaza Strip. Just explain a little bit about you know what Blinken is actually genuinely going to ask for here, because there has been, uh, there are two narratives here, aren't there? They, they have the fact that um, Israel is responding to the attack on uh, on its country on the 7th of October by Hamas, its determination to uh, decapitate Hamas, remove it from Gaza is something which is absolutely clear. But at the same time, we have this unfolding uh, humanitarian crisis, which Human Rights Watch have said that you know that Hamas committed war crimes against Israeli citizens, but it doesn't mean that you can do the same thing to innocent Palestinians. Well, that's exactly right. And as you just noted, trying to balance both those messages together uh, can be a bit difficult, right? It's a, a difficult path to, to find between those two. But I think if we think about it in the sense of, I think the administration sees from a so just war perspective and obviously right to self-defense and to respond to Hamas. But in terms of how you do that, that also matters. So they have been pushing for a specific um, type of military response that would be more targeted, more surgical, more precise 
precise. And moreover, what Biden, what Blinken will be talking about on this visit is the need for humanitarian pauses. This is different than a ceasefire um, from the administration's point of view, which many are calling for. The administration sees that as a full cessation of hostilities. What they are asking for instead is a literally a pause, you know, 24 hours and um, something to that extent to be able to get more aid into the Gaza Strip to get people who need to get out out of the Gaza Strip um, and to ensure that that can happen. So that, I think, will be the main message. We've been seeing it very vocalized in Washington in the lead up to this trip. And I imagine it's what they'll be talking about most today. How, how likely Israel is, is Israel to respond to this? I mean, given the fact that the United States is playing a very close role in the Israeli military operation in Gaza, not just reportedly helping with strategy and tactics, but also um, I think there's some reports today that um, drone surveillance drones have been sent over Gaza, US surveillance drones have been sent to look for hostages for more than a week now. And Can the US actually force or oblige Israel to change their approach? Yeah, I would I would emphasize that the U.S. knows that Israel is its own sovereign state, will make its own decisions. So the U.S. has leverage, but I think it's sometimes um, overemphasized that the U.S. can call the shots for Israel. That's simply not the case. And, and the U.S. respects Israel in that regard. And, and Israel would, is going to do make its own decisions on this. With that said, I do think the pressure for a humanitarian pause is something that they might be able to get some traction on already this week through mainly U.S.-led diplomacy. Israel has agreed to increase the number of aid trucks coming through the Gaza um, border from the south. Um, that's supposed to go up to 100 per day by the end of the week. It's currently around 40 to 50 and up from you know pretty much zero a week ago. So the U.S. has been somewhat successful in that, has been somewhat successful in opening the border and getting some people out of Gaza. But they are looking for more and they're going to press Israel for that humanitarian pause, which um, you know I think they feel they have some leverage having stood shoulder to shoulder with Israel with the response, but saying this has to be done in a way that at least has some humanitarian consideration to it. It's a question of scale, isn't it? Because there are estimates that seven and a half, eight thousand people could leave um, Gaza through um, the crossing into Egypt. And this is being seen as a tiny chink of light in an incredibly dark moment. But when you have two million Palestinians in Gaza, the, the fact remains is that... It, it seems like a very small amount of um, effectiveness that the United States is having here. And were that to persist and were the sense that Israel is just running its own game and is not listening to the United States, what are the wider implications for Washington on the global stage? Well, the implications are quite uh, notable. And I think that's one reason why Blinken is personally going to the region and meeting not only with Israel today, but Jordan tomorrow. Uh, the U.S. is aware that their um, their stance with Israel um, probably will cause backlash to them um, across the region. And that it also, the humanitarian considerations could ultimately um, have backlash against Israel as well. You know, Israel is seeing this as an operation extremely necessary for their security. The U.S. worries that might be a Pyrrhic victory and might create more long-term um, challenges for Israel if the humanitarian suffering um, continues as, as we've seen it and as those images continue. Um, and as you noted, I would just say, you know, the crossing into to Egypt, many Palestinians are who live in Gaza, about 75 percent, are already refugees or descendants of refugees. And to be displaced once again um, to Egypt, which is a state that is not particularly 
open to absorbing lots uh, is, is not really an option. So it's really a case of getting those pauses and getting aid into the strip. Finally, Julie, budgets need to be talked about here. The the, the House has just um, agreed to give, I think it's $14 billion in military aid to Israel. Ukraine is not mentioned here. What's happening? Yes, so um, the President and the US Senate have supported a package that would join aid to Israel with aid to Ukraine. The House, as you noted just yesterday, um, stripped out the Ukraine aid and just passed a, uh, a bill for aid to Israel. Um, my sense is that the president, Biden, and the Senate are not supportive of this. The Senate is planning to make its own bipartisan bill that would include both Ukraine and Israel and try and reach some kind of compromise. So that's where it sits now. But we can expect um, really from both sides of the aisle in the Senate, as well as very strong um, arm twisting, if you will, from Biden to get this through. Julie Norman, thank you as ever for joining us on Monocle Radio. The time here in London is just nudging nine minutes past midday. You're listening to The Briefing with me, Emma Nelson. Now let's get the latest news headlines. Here's Tom Webb. Thanks, Emma. The founder of the FTX cryptocurrency exchange, Sam Bankman-Fried, has been found guilty of wire fraud, conspiracy and money laundering. The former billionaire was one of the best-known figures in the crypto industry when FTX went bankrupt last year. Bankman-Fried will be sentenced in March and faces decades in prison. Primary schools in Delhi have been closed for two days due to concerns about rising air pollution. India's environment minister has called an emergency meeting to assess the situation. Air pollution often peaks in the Indian capital in early November due to crop burning and low winds. And more than 9,000 fewer flights will be allowed through Amsterdam Schiphol Airport by next summer in a bid to reduce noise pollution. The plans also include a ban on takeoffs and landings at night and reduced access for private jets. The head of Air France, KLM, has called the measures incomprehensible. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Emma. Thank you very much indeed, Tom Webb. The time here in London is 10 past midday. Now, Japan says it's to scale back an historic five-year increase in its military procurement because of a collapse in the yen. The military build-up, which was estimated to cost 43.5 trillion yen, was aimed at helping to deter a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. Well, Tomohiko Taniguchi is a former special advisor to the cabinet of Shinzo Abe, a regular voice here in Monaco. Uh, very warm welcome to the programme, Tomohiko. Thank you very much, Emma, for having me again. So just explain to us, could you outline what this scale back looks like? Uh, You can't see how much scale back is going to take place, but certainly the uh, amount of uh, depreciation, the level of appreciation of Japanese currency is very much uh, something that that is unheard of. And there would be negative, negative uh, repercussions on everything, uh, one of um, uh, one of the most important elements, of course, is uh, about uh, the defense budget, and defense budget is going to be negatively negatively affected. Tell us a little bit, though, about why we've talked about the depreciation of the yen, but this this step up to uh, strengthen the Japanese military was something which was incredibly important to Japan on so many levels, wasn't it? It is. It is very much incredibly important. And many of the elements within the defense budget are going to be uh, affected by no ups and downs of the Japanese currency because it is to uh, refurbish uh, some of the housing uh, complexes 
of the soldiers and officers, and it is to increase the salaries uh, to the members of the Japanese armed forces and so on. But when it comes to procuring strategic arsenal, such as Tomahawk missiles from the United States, and that is also very much important to increase Japan's deterrence capacities against uh, uh, possibly China's uh, uh, possible invasion into Taiwan. Uh, the price tag of uh, the missiles, Tomahawk missiles, is going to be extremely higher. Uh, remember that uh, the exchange rate between the US dollar and Japan's uh, yen at the end of this year was something like 120. It is now 150. Um, the good news is you can travel uh, to Japan and uh, uh, very much a value for money way. Uh, uh, and so Japan's now relatively a cheap country, but the other side of the coin is you can't uh, uh, buy something that you wanted to buy, uh, like uh, Tomahawk missile. And if you are sitting in Beijing, you may be looking at this with a smile on your face. <laughs> Probably so. The uh, net beneficiary uh, here is really the Chinese, because the Chinese are buying Japanese property in a massive scale. Uh, you can't register your property in China. There is no ownership uh, allowed in China. But here in Japan, first of all, it's cheaper. Second of all, you could register your property officially, eternally with the Japanese authority. So uh, a lot of people from China are coming to Japan and uh, bottom fishing uh, Japanese land property. And it also means that militarily, um, to see Japan not being as ambitious in its military plans will mean that the 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 ability for china to flex its military muscles with regards to taiwan and the south china sea will be increased i think that's very much an important point because as is the case with most of the marketing strategies perception is even more important than reality so i uh, i should say uh, there should be advice to be heard by prime minister prime minister kishida uh, who should stand up and calm down the situation and stay firm and resolute that we are going to go uh, this way and we are going to do as planned. Tell us a little bit more about um, Fumio Kishida's um, stimulus package that was announced um, yesterday. There's 17 trillion yen, that's about 100, just a little over $100 billion, to give tax breaks and benefits for low-income households. Many are saying that this is a, a, a populist spending move. Would you agree? I think it's um, fair to say so. Uh, what's strange, something unheard of, is even though uh, Mr. Kishida has proposed such generous package uh, to the less privileged and uh, he's also talking about reducing tax instead of um, uh, increasing tax nonetheless his popularity ratings have not gone up rather rather it's been um, constantly on the wane and i think uh, mr kishida is um, scratching his head uh, again the solution uh, perhaps here is for mr kishida to be more articulate and to be uh, to 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 appear firm and resolute, which I think is um, extremely difficult, given uh, that uh, Japanese Parliament is sitting, and Prime Minister Kishida has to 
also attend the parliamentary sessions every day for seven, eight uh, successive hours, and uh, he 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 continues has he has to be he has to, he has he has to continue to be grilled by the opposition uh, party members. Uh, this country has one of the Spartan parliamentary arrangements in the world. Tomohiko Taniguchi in Tokyo, thank you so much as ever for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Briefing. And you're back with The Briefing on Monocle Radio with me, Emma Nelson. Now, during a state visit to Kenya, the UK's King Charles has expressed deep regret at the actions of the British Empire in the country. Charles referred to the greatest sorrow and deepest regret for the wrongdoings of the past. But the monarch, however, stopped short of an apology. On Navina Kotor is a multimedia journalist based in Nairobi. I'm delighted to say she joins us now. A very good afternoon to you, Navina. Good afternoon. So just tell us exactly what... King Charles said and what he was referring to? King Charles made these comments fairly early in his visit uh, during a state dinner at State House with uh, Kenyan President Ruto. He spoke about unresolved injustices and uh, he expressed regret, as you said, but he didn't really apologize for what happened here during the British colonial um, times here, especially during the Mau Mau um, uprising when Kenyans rose up against colonial um, the colonial powers. And in the run-up to this, Kenyan human rights groups and other groups had called on the British government to issue an apology, but um, this is really only possible for the government and not for the head of state. And tell me how that reaction has gone down. I think the reaction is mixed. There are older Kenyans who are looking for compensation, reparation. There are younger Kenyans who want more of a decoupling from the previous colonial power. Um, I don't think anyone feels it went far enough, but uh, that it might be the right step in the right direction. Um, there is a court case underway at the European Court of Human Rights that has been brought by some of the survivors, some people who have been, who were expelled from their land by the British uh, colonial administration at the time. They, they say they lost their lands, they lost their livelihoods, and they're looking for uh, compensation worth billions at the European Court of Human Rights. I think we will hear more about that in the coming uh, year. And then there is a discussion underway as to how uh, the country itself should deal with what happened in the past. There are also survivors of this uh, Mau Mau uprising that I mentioned earlier who are looking for British assistance to find out what happened to their to their family members, uh, especially the Kimathi family is looking f- to find out where Peter Kimathi was uh, buried. And uh, it's my understanding that, that a private meeting happened between one of uh, the family members and King Charles. And I think we'll find out more about whether the British government is really um, going to push for more information to be supplied as to where these remains are. It's a difficult situation that, that Charles finds himself in, isn't it? Given the fact that the Kenya Human Rights Commission have urged the Char- uh, urged the king to give an unequivocal public apology. But as you say, the minute that Charles accepts his nation's responsibility, then the floodgates open for legal action. But this is something that really does need to be addressed, isn't it? 
Yes, I do think it is something that needs to be addressed both in the UK where um, there needs to be more discussion and debate and education about what happened here and happened in other uh, countries that were part of the British Empire. But also here, I think, though, that uh, and that's my feeling being in the region that European countries that were present here as colonial powers are waking up to these demands. At the same week this week, the German head of state, Frank-Walter Steinmeier, asked for forgiveness in Tanzania for a brutal repression of an uprising there. I think that European countries are looking to strengthen their relationship on the continent, especially vis-a-vis Russia, so that this, and they know that this is something that is constantly being used by Russia and is fueling resentment in the country. So, But as you say, uh, an apology is one thing. The question what follows, whether um, reparations have to follow and who should be compensated and so on and so forth, is really a massive discussion that needs to happen in British Parliament, but also here, and that really needs to come from the British government. Speaking more widely of King Charles's visit, I mean, he this was his first visit as a king to a Commonwealth member country. I mean, how relevant is membership of the Commonwealth to the likes of Kenya? I think there are countries that um, are strong supporters of being in the Commonwealth. Um, you know, Rwanda joined very late because it felt uh, it could benefit from being in the Commonwealth. Kenya, I think, has been not hugely enthusiastic, but hasn't really called it into question. I don't think there's that much debate here about leaving the Commonwealth as there is in other countries. Um, I think it's important to mention the economic links that exist between the two countries when it comes to tourism, when it comes to um, uh, food exports, when it comes to um, close kind of cooperation uh, in terms of security and other issues and on the international stage. So, Um, I think the Commonwealth membership is right now not really up for discussion um, because there are other issues in the relationship between these two countries that are more important. I think the other big issue that is weighing on um, people's minds here is the presence of British security forces in Laikipia in the centre of the country. Um, There were incidents 2012 where... British forces were accused of being negligent and having set 12,000 acres of land on fire by accident, um, that during a drought and when people are really dependent on land. So I think there are other issues in this country that are more important than the actual Commonwealth membership. Naveen Koto, thank you so much for joining us on The Briefing on Monocle Radio. Time now to get the day's business headlines from Bloomberg's Ewan Potts. Good afternoon, Ewan. Hi, Emma. Good to have you with us. Um, Let's talk about Danish shipping. Maersk, in trouble. Yeah, Maersk shares the worst performer on the European stock 600 today. It's cutting at least 10,000 jobs around the world. 6,500 have uh, already gone. Maersk's uh, earnings before interest and tax dropped 80% uh, on 
uh, a year ago. Now, it's all to do with uh, lower freight, freight rates and increased competition in marine transport. Container lines are really facing an abrupt drop in earnings. They had uh, an incredible uh, pandemic. This is really a pandemic unwind story. We were, we were speaking earlier in the week about the car industry and some of the after effects of the pandemic and how it's still being affected by that. Well, this is uh, writ large here. The shipping industry had a real boom during the pandemic. We were all stuck at home, not spending money on services, unable to spend money on services. So we bought lots of stuff and all that stuff needed shipping, uh, often from China to the West, but it needed shipping around the world. And there was also a, a lack of supply, a lack of container ships to do that shipping. So, of course, that drove shipping rates really, really high. And it was an incredible boom for the industry. They made a lot of money. Well, that is really unwinding now, and it is unwinding uh, very uh, sharply. And the company is facing a much lower shipping rates. There's actually an oversupply now of ships. It's a classic cycle of boom and bust uh, because of those high prices. A lot of uh, extra companies entered the market. There was more shipping capacity, and now there is a glut of capacity, uh, and there is not enough demand. And that is, of course, combined with a weaker economy. So that is uh, really bad news uh, for Mesk. Is it just going to be bad news for Mask or all all those other shipping companies you said came into being during and post-pandemic? Are they going to feel the pinch as well? Yeah, I think it is a structural problem really across the industry. I think there's really a host of headwinds there. Uh, it is not just the pandemic unwind, although that is the, the the big picture stuff. We've also got anemic global growth. People uh, generally are buying less stuff. The amount of global trade uh, is not growing like it was during the pandemic or even before the pandemic. Uh, and the global economic growth is pretty tepid. But there's also, I think, a, a broader picture about the uh, reshaping uh, of global trade and some of that reshoring we've seen from uh, particularly the US, but other countries in Europe as well, uh, moving some of their production back online and friend shoring, you can call it as well, choosing not to buy stuff from China uh, when we have political issues with them. So that process of uh, deglobalization, uh, of course, uh, that is a massive headwind if you are involved uh, in globalization, as I suppose you could say that Maersk is. It is a, cent- is a company very much at the center uh, of globalization. And when those forces start to unwind, uh, it is pretty tricky for Maersk and for the rest of the industry. Finally, a quick question about Apple. Um, the chief executive, Tim Cook, says that the new iPhone is doing brilliantly in China, but this is not doing enough to really you know, calm worries about Apple's share and Apple's, well, that's Apple's share prices as well. Mm, yeah, well, Tim Cook is certainly trying to talk a good game on China, but that was really one of the things which analysts were most focused on uh, in the the earnings discussion. Uh, and that is the f- future of China. It's the most important export market for the world's most valuable company. It accounts for about a fifth of uh, Apple's sales. Uh, and there are worries that there is a slowdown uh, in the Chinese market. The company did report record uh, revenue for the quarter in China. That came in at $15 billion, but it wasn't as much as the $17 billion, which uh, a lot of analysts uh, had expected. It's facing uh, a number of problems in China. The government has been cracking down on US technology and their tit-for-tat uh, dispute with with the US. A number of workplaces, particularly uh, state-owned enterprises and some government departments, you're not allowed to use uh, Apple iPhones. And that is uh, certain to take the edge off uh, sales. They're also facing uh, a whizzy new phone from Huawei. That's providing fresh competition. It's got a lot of uh, sparking uh, chips in it there. And that was launched about the same time as the iPhone 15. So that is another issue for Apple 
in China. It did say more broadly that revenue from the iPad and the wearables category, which includes smartwatches, are going to drop significantly during the quarter. And they did warn that sales over the holiday season, that is the final three months of the year, will be about the same as last year. And analysts had expected growth of about 5%. So that is quite a big gap, big, big gap uh, in Apple's uh, projections. Ewan Potts at Bloomberg. Thank you for joining us on Monocle Radio. Now, anyone who's travelled on the Sky Metro at Zurich Airport will recognise this sound. It's the little clip played as you travel from plane to terminal, a charming and romantic reminder of where you are. Switzerland, defined in sound, by the cowbell. But cowbells worn by cattle to establish their location on the alpine pastures have become the source of trouble in one Swiss village. Newly arrived residents of Arvangen have complained that they're just a nuisance. Well, Imogen Fox is a broadcaster and correspondent based in Geneva. A very good afternoon to you, Imogen. Hello. So many of us would associate the sound of cowbells as a deeply peaceful one. Uh, Not so in Arvangen. Not so in Arvangen, that's right. And because although cowbells aren't really needed anymore to keep track of cows on the high alpine pastures, because all the cows are electronically chipped now, farmers still use them. And some of them cling to the old tradition of cows wearing them both day and night and in spring and autumn we're in autumn now the cows are outside day and night and if you're living close by and this is what's happened in Arvangen it's a beautiful old farming village but it's also an easy commute to Bern or Zurich or Basel you've got new housing estates new residents and they are kind of cheek by jowl if you like with the farms so the cows are outside their bedroom window and when they're really close they can be really loud. And as a result, it's waking up the locals or the newly arrived locals in Arvangen. Arrived locals. I mean, I have to be honest, a few years ago, I lived a little bit further outside the Swiss capital there, still in the city, interestingly, but there was a farm next to our apartment. And that farmer didn't have his cows out at night, but when he let them out after milking at six in the morning, if they made a dash towards our end of the field... You did hear it. I mean, I don't remember it as being massively disturbing, but the occasional Saturday to Sunday morning, you just thought, oh, no, I thought I was going to sleep for another couple of hours. And now I'm not. So I do understand it. But at the same time, it's also the sound of Swiss identity for many people in this country. That's why it's there at Zurich Airport, welcoming the Swiss home. So what have the locals um said about this because they will have been there you know a very very long time and cowbells will have just been part of the natural rhythm of the day and the night that's right and there's there is among many swiss this feeling that we're such a small country and we have a lot of immigration a quarter of the population is not swiss that we really need to make that extra effort to hold on to our culture our traditions our lived identity. And this is kind of writ large now in Arvangen. I mean, the farmers there 
will be farming the same land that their fathers, grandfathers and great grandfathers farmed. They will have bells that are 100, 150 years old. And they will tell you, many older farmers have told me this, I can tell each cow by the sound of its own individual bell because they're not all the same. So it does mean a lot. But I think there is a feeling among a lot of people too that, you know, compromise, do they need to wear them all night long? Could we keep them during the day, perhaps, you know, find a way to live in harmony, which the Swiss always pride themselves as being very good at, remember. Well, indeed, I mean, this will, I am assuming, be resolved by some sort of local referendum. Is that correct? Of course, that's the other big Swiss tradition, as long as, as well as the bells. There will be a village-wide meeting in December to mandate the council to draw up a new law protecting cowbells. And then that will go to a vote of the whole village population sometime next year. So, you know, direct democracy, some might say at its finest, some might say maybe a bit at its craziest. But at the end of the day, the people who live in Arvangen, all those who are Swiss, will have a say. I think one can imagine which way the vote's going to go. Yeah, I think we can. I think those bells are going to get protected. However, interestingly, what they're all conscious of is that there is actually a federal decibel level law in Switzerland already, which is will be superior to whatever law Armangen passes. So although they may keep their bells all day and all night forever, they're going to have to stay within this, this decibel level reached inside a neighbour's house, inside their bedroom while they're trying to sleep, if you like. Finally, Imogen, anybody who's been to a major Swiss city, if you walk along the banks of Lake Geneva, you'll see Mont Blanc rising up like a glorious meringue in the background. Go around Zurich and you will see that amazing combination of urbanism and alpine life. Is this story perhaps a suggestion that there may be a little bit of trouble brewing between the two points of view? I think Arvangen is perhaps a symbol of a certain urban-rural divide. We've seen it around much more kind of important or serious, if you like, issues like climate change, where um, the farmers say to what they call the hipsters in the cities, look, you don't understand how we work. You don't understand that we need a certain amount of not really strong pesticides because they're banned in Switzerland already, but we need sometimes to do something with fertilizer, something to grow the crops that you eat, to raise the cattle whose milk and cheese you eat. Um, we need diesel, that's another one, for, for our tractors, etc., etc. So there is that kind of divide going on, you know, an unrealistic, this is what was said to me yesterday, talking to people in the village, city dwellers have a romantic, idealised version of what living in the country is. They think cows don't smell, they think bells don't make any noise, and when they get out here and they're confronted with the reality, they complain about it. People in the city would say, we do want to preserve our beautiful environment, we're Swiss too, um, and we should work together. But sometimes perhaps there is an element of truth in that maybe idealised version of what living on the land actually is.
Imogen Fox in Geneva, thank you so much for joining us on the line. And that's all we have time for today's edition of The Briefing. Many thanks to all my guests and to the producers, Lillian Fawcett and Laura Kramer. Our researcher was Harrison Warlock. Our studio manager was Steph Chungu. The Briefing is back on Monday at the same time. I hope you can join me for that if you can. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening and have a great weekend. 